Kia Ora from Victoria University of Wellington. Our podcast gives you the chance to catch up with our academics and guest speakers who lead thinking on the big questions facing society. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. So now I'd like to introduce the evening speakers. Um, hosting uh, tonight is Tim Murphy, as I said, founder and co-editor of Newsroom. Um, Tim's had a background as former editor-in-chief of the New Zealand Herald. He's an experienced journalist with a uh, background in breaking news and political reporting. Um, he will be in conversation tonight with author and political commentator Max Rashbrook, as well as being a proud Victoria alumnus himself and former editor of <coughs> Salient. Um, Max is currently a senior associate at Victoria's Institute for Governance and Policy Studies. And as a journalist, Max has written for outlets in Britain and New Zealand, including The Guardian, The National Business Review and Metro. He has twice been the recipient of the Bruce Jessen Senior Journalism Award and was a 2015 Winston Churchill Fellow. His current project is a book on the renewal of government in the 21st century. So we're very pleased to have Max and Tim here this evening. Please join me in welcoming. It's um, funny to think about having been editor of Salient, and I have to say I probably um, have and I'm going to have a warmer relationship with Grant than I did with his predecessor uh, when I was editor of Salient and Stuart McCutcheon was the Vice-Chancellor of the University. We had a fair few clashes on things, but that's in the nature of the job. You're probably not doing your job as Salient editor if you don't uh, have that kind of thing. Um, anyway, it's a great pleasure to be here um, and be talking about advancing government um, as part of the wider work that Vic does on this. Um, it's a funny time to be talking about this in a way, of course, when the shape of our future government is completely up in the air um, and dependent on the whims of someone you'd rather not have it dependent on. Um, but at the same time, even though there's uncertainty about the politics, there's a fair degree of certainty, I guess, about the policies um, that might be implemented or indeed the ones that won't be. Um, and that's what I mostly wanted to talk about tonight. I mean, I'm just going to talk for a few minutes and then Tim and I are going to chat about these things. Because it really struck me during the election campaign that there were some very, very big issues um, facing New Zealand, some of them international trends, some of them local, that really didn't feature in the campaign discussion at all, or only at the margins. Um, and while that's maybe not unusual, I think it is concerning. And I wanted to pick out half a dozen of those. Um, now, I mean, of course, there are any number of issues that weren't discussed that you could raise. Um, this list isn't comprehensive um, or definitive. It's just a set of issues that particularly struck me were missing, and partly some of them issues that I've spent a fair bit of time researching and looking into myself. Um, the first one of those is the what you used to call the fourth industrial revolution. Um, and the way in which technology is rapidly upsetting um, many way, facets of the way we live, in particular the potential for uh, automation to be extremely disruptive. Now, I'm at the more optimistic end of things. I think some of the projections of mass obsolescence of humans are overstated, but I do think continuing automation is going to add to that process of hollowing out the workforce that we've seen. Um, the jobs most likely to be automated are those sort of in the middle of the income distribution and it's likely to accelerate a trend, a sort of polarisation 
of society. We have a lot of people in low-paid jobs and number of people in high-paid jobs. And I think that has real challenges um, for government, has challenges for society, in terms of retraining, in terms of ensuring that the people who are in that sort of the lower paid end, which is predominantly women and um, ethnic minorities, that we find ways of lifting their pay and ensuring that they can lead decent lives as well. That ties into the second big thing that I thought wasn't really on the agenda, and that's the sheer scale of economic inequality that New Zealand faces. You know, we've gone from a situation in the 1980s where someone in the top tenth earned five times as much as someone in the poorest tenth. That's now more like eight or nine times as much. So a very significant change. And you know, we had parties talking about a bit about child poverty, some of it very much on the hoof. Um, but no real plan to deal even with that element of inequality. And not saying much about precariousness either, you know, we now have a workforce in which up to a third of people are in short-term, temporary, casual work with very limited protections, limited ability to plan their lives. And, you know, during the election debate we didn't even really answer a very basic question which is what kinds of those precarious work do we think are so unacceptable that we're just going to ban them? Uh, conversely, which of them do we accept because it's so beneficial to business to have that kind of flexibility? And therefore, how does the welfare state adapt to those kinds of precarious work so that it doesn't damage the lives of the people in it? And that sort of ties into the third big area that I thought was really missing, which was any substantial discussion of welfare reform. You know, we have a welfare system, I would say, perfectly designed to deal with the problems of the 1970s, basically. You know, it's set up on the premise of all sorts of ideas about work and the nature of society, the nature of relationships, which just don't hold anymore. Uh, it's colossally complicated. People working in government would say, yes, it massively needs an overhaul, but there's no appetite for it. Now, I'm not convinced that the answer to all of that is a universal basic income, which some people do talk about, but I think it's a really important debate to raise about do we need a system that is that does have fewer conditions and is more flexible, that it adjusts day-to-day, week-to-week to the fluctuations in people's income. Uh, moving on to a different topic, um, a fourth big issue that I thought was missing was an engagement with the scale of adaptation needed uh, to address climate change. Now this was on the agenda during the election campaign a little bit more than the other issues, but you know we still have parties saying, well, we'll have a zero carbon act, which is fine, but what's going to be in that zero carbon act? How are we actually going to get there? I mean, you know, things like the Vivid Economics report, which some of you will be familiar with, you know, said if you know on our current trajectory we are nowhere near fulfilling our responsibilities in terms of combating climate change. If we are going to do that, it could involve things like a 35% reduction in the dairy herd, for instance. But how would we actually do that? What would that mean? How would we adapt to that? How would our economy adapt? Um, you know, and in the bigger picture, are we going to have to sacrifice living standards? Um, you know, the argument that we can do this without sacrificing living standards is that you can decouple, you know, you can have economic growth without increasing emissions. 
and that decoupling is happening internationally, but at nowhere near the level that it needs to to get us to, you know, keep us under two degrees warming and so on and so forth. Now, it may be that, that we can manage that process. We don't have to sacrifice living standards, but surely that is a huge debate we should be having, and yet I just don't, don't see that being raised. Um, the fifth big issue, I think, is around demographics and the changing nature of New Zealand society. Um, we have a rapidly ageing population, which I personally think is an opportunity. Um, but the debate around that is mostly framed around this very narrow question of do we raise the retirement age, which I actually think is the least of the questions because really it's fundamentally a question about what is the deal between generations. You know, how much does each generation put in and what does it support? You know, is retirement this thing that we actually want to expand as a, you know, as a sign of growing human prosperity? And, you know, each generation puts in a certain amount in the expectation that it will in turn get back more when it comes to its turn? Or actually is it a limited entitlement that we can only sustain at a certain level? You know, what's the nature of that deal between generations, I think, is a huge question that, again, I didn't hear being discussed during the election campaign. Um, you know, we, and we also have changing demographics in terms of the ethnic composition, particularly of Auckland. Um, you know, and again, I think that's a hugely positive thing, but is everyone ready for it? Do, you know, I think a lot of our cultural institutions, our narratives, our myths, are still predicated on the idea of a majority Pākehā population. How do those adapt? How do those adjust you know, in the modern world? And then finally, um, another big issue for me was that wasn't discussed was what is the nature of a post-treaty settlements world? Um, I think there's a feeling, certainly amongst Pākehā New Zealanders, <coughs> And they were sort of implicit in the election that, you know, once we get the treaty settlements done, well, that's done. You know, job done, take that off. But actually, I think if you look, you know, if, if you're really trying to think about, well, what, what does it mean, you know, to forge a country that lives up to the promises of the treaty, which so often not been lived up to, you know, sort of the, the more cutting-edge scholarship in this area would say, well, it's really about power sharing, you know, and the treaty guaranteed separate spheres of autonomy for Māori and Pākehā and a relational sphere between those two cultures. And, you know, some people like Moana Jackson, the work he did with the Matiki Mai process, would say, well, maybe that takes you to a place where you have uh, an upper house that is half Pākehā half Māori and that's your relational space and that has an important role in decision making. Those kinds of power sharing questions I think are absolutely essential to grapple with but you know I see them nowhere on the agenda at the moment and I guess to sort of close off these remarks it's a great example of the sort of question that I think we can't avoid because it's going to come down the track at us whatever we do uh, and the consequences of not dealing with it I think are potentially really severe, but at the same time the opportunity, you know, to really fulfil the promises of the treaty I think are significant. So there's a semi-optimistic note to end on. Thank you Max. Um, I've covered much of the campaign, uh, certainly in this northern part of the country when the political parties were here and some of the debates. 
Um, I heard them peck away at the edges of some of these topics. Um, and I wondered whether, to, just to start with a broad question before we try and get through all five or six of those, are you surprised that retail politicians can't actually put these subjects to the public in a way that's digestible and understandable? Because they are quite abstract. They're quite complex, and they're not now. Uh, so I, I wonder whether the retail politicians think, well, somehow someone somewhere else is going to have to deal with this. Because for the now, I need to deal with the people who you know, decide a fate in two weeks. Yeah, I mean, I think we shouldn't sort of beat ourselves up too much in the sense that in a lot of countries, you know, politics and government struggle to deal with these issues. And in a lot of countries, you can look at their elections and see that the things that maybe should be on the agenda probably aren't. Um, and a lot of that is because, I mean, if you look at that list of things that I have there, most of those involve, like a lot of questions in politics, quite significant winners and losers. Um, and in some cases, the people who regard themselves as losers uh, would outnumber the winners or are more vocal. And, you know, and that is the, the sort of classic problem of democratic politics, that it, that it struggles to deal with those questions. Um, and I also think that, I mean, say, for dealing with inequality, for instance, where I've seen a lot of focus group work around this, middle New Zealanders, you know, who are a big sort of voting bloc, are concerned about inequality, um, but they think they're the ones who are hard done by. You know, because there's all these advantages for people at the top, and there is, quote unquote, all this help for people at the bottom. Mm. I mean, this is not in fact true, but this is what people believe. Um, and so they think that they, in the struggling middle, are the ones you know who are done by. And so that is a massive block on anything that would genuinely address inequality. In terms of, what, what, uh, there was one party that took one of your issues and took a multi-year, big picture approach, and that was Labour over the Future of Work Commission, mm. which I think was a couple of years of work. Mm. They delivered it late last year, and I think their manifesto included perhaps a third of the recommendations that its commission made. So even though they've been brave, again, there's that reticence to push too hard. What did you make of the future of work work? Uh, and do you think it's the basis for uh, the change that New Zealand needs in terms of a, a precariat and about robotics and AI and the change that lies ahead? Yeah, I was, um, to be honest, I was a bit underwhelmed um, by the future of work program. I mean, I thought it was absolutely the right issue to be looking mm -hmm. at um, and quite a lot of effort was put into tackling with it but I mean I read the final report through and I was I was pretty underwhelmed I mean there was some good stuff in there about I guess some of the adaptation some of the ways in which they'll change the need for education and retraining and the, the three years free tertiary education policy came out of that and I thought that was bold and insensible but like I said I mean I don't feel that it that it addressed you know, some of these really basic questions about precarious work, for instance. What's in, what's out? What are we banning? What are we adapting to? Um, 
and you know, and to the extent, and it sort of flirted with ideas about a universal basic income, but didn't really go there, and in fact backed away very quickly mm. from it when it became a political mm. storm, as you'll recall. So, yeah, in the end, I mean, I think, yeah, it was it was a, a good effort in the right place to be, but I don't think it delivered very well. Do you have any views on what areas of the precarious workforce that we ought to be looking at? Um, running out or, or not eliminating, but, you know, of, of making a, a stand as a society? Well, I mean, I think to some extent we did a little bit a couple of years ago with the debate about zero-hours contracts, mm-hmm. you know, and, I mean, you know, for all that I'm being critical of how New Zealand politics is working, I mean, that was a positive one in the sense that we addressed the issue more so than some other developed countries have. But I guess the question there, I mean, the... You know, the settlement there was to say, well, you can't have zero-hours contracts and, you know, work that's sort of a variable nature. You have to agree that in a reasonable way with staff and you can't change it at the last minute unreasonably. But so I think there's a question about, well, is that working? You know, and will those arrangements ever work in a country where you have very few labour inspectors and very weak unions? Um, And then I think there's also, for me, one of the big questions is about people who are fundamentally in a permanent employment relationship with their employer but are not recognised as such. You know, and these are the people who are on sort of perpetually renewed three-month rolling contracts. You know, all the people who are like, who are Uber drivers or whatever, deliverer in other countries, fundamentally are getting all their money from this particular source and they're expected to be there at the beck and call all the time and yet they have none of the protections and privileges of full-time workers. So I think that's a really big area where there's definitely some practices that you have to say, well, these are not acceptable. So do you think the Ubers of this world are the start of something new or the end of something old? The end point of that kind of uh, policy? Oh, good question. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting that you're already seeing sort of you know, indigenous, if you like, New Zealand versions of Uber spring up, mm. you know, which certainly pay their staff better and possibly even treat them better, I don't know. I think, I don't really know, I mean, it's very difficult to predict the future and I wouldn't, you know, even try to guess with Uber. What I think, what I do think about it is it sort of shows up the ways in which governments can react well or can react badly. I mean, I think in New Zealand, as in a lot of other developed countries, a government has sort of looked a bit like, you know, has looked a bit sort of caught in the headlights with Uber, like didn't know how to respond, didn't know whether to be tough, whether to be lenient, how to take it on, has sort of responded in slow and sort of confusing ways. Whereas something that I've written a bit about, sort of obscurely enough, is the way that um, Taiwan responded to the arrival of Uber. Mm. where they straight away, they they, they have a very sort of fast, flexible, tech-focused government. Straight away they set up an online um, consultation using sort of very new tools that are designed to sort of group people, allow people to put up ideas about how they'd like Uber to be regulated, have them voted on by other people, ideas get knocked back until they get to sort of 80% acceptance in the group. So you're driving people towards consensus, so you're doing online really well. The ideas that came out of that consultation were then put to Uber, 
in a meeting with government officials, which they live streamed. So none of this backroom stuff that's the normal way of working in government. Live streamed it, live transcribed it, got the, you know, the, um, I think it was Uber's chief financial officer or something like that, got them there in the spotlight, and Uber basically caved in on six of the seven demands. Now, it wasn't a perfect process by any means, but it just shows you, well, governments can res- they can respond quickly to these questions that, you know, the fourth industrial revolution is throwing up. You know, we often, it's often said, oh, government, you know, is outdated, it can't adapt, it's, you know, going the way of the dinosaurs. Actually, it can, but you just have to do it the right way. And without getting into it, the, the decision in London probably was a bit more of a blunt instrument um, and a protectionist instrument in some ways. Yeah, you, you've had that, and you've also had the courts in the UK um, ruling that Uber effectively is, you know, the permanent employer of its drivers. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, courts. I mean, it, but that process would be incredibly slow because Uber will appeal that at every stage of the way, and yeah, and bans are pretty blunt instruments. So, I mean, it's, it probably works in a sort of kind of high stakes sort of blackmail. <laughs> Blackmail kind of poker kind of way, but yeah, I don't think that's the best way about it. In terms of inequality, during the campaign, you would have seen uh, Bill English and Jacinda Ardern faced off each other. I think it was the Christchurch press debate, and she said inequality has broadened and widened and deepened in the nine years you've been in power. And he said, no, it's not. It's not true. Hmm. Did you hit your head on the desk or into your hand? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it is one of those situations where it's frustrating because so much can get lost in the noise and you can portray, a, give a very different portrayal of the issue depending on what period of time you use. Um, what really has happened under National has been a slight increase in inequality. You know, people at the top end of the scale doing a little bit better than people at the bottom, but not a drastic widening of it. But that slight increase has cancelled out the slight decrease under the last Labour government, which was mostly thanks to working for families, higher minimum wage. And so that sort of leads you with sort of kind of net sort of zero improvement over the last 15 years. So we're still at where we were basically at the end of the 90s after that period of very disruptive change where we had the biggest increase in inequality of any developed country. And that's the fact that sort of gets obscured when you just argue about about now, National's current record. Mm. Nothing has been done to address that massive increase in inequality, Uh, an increase that I think raises ethical questions, but also just very practical ones, the the very large body of evidence that high levels of inequality generate all sorts of negative social outcomes. The counter view, and The Economist has argued this for years, is that inequality doesn't matter if everybody's going up. So the people who used to be there are brought up to there. They might be way below those on the top, but it shouldn't matter. And that's the whole Gini coefficient argument. But how do you respond to that? Well, I think you have to say that these things are fundamentally relative. I mean, if you go way back, right, to Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, basically said there's there's two kinds of poverty. You know, there's the poverty of just sort of not having very basic elemental things you need to survive, food and a roof over your head and all of that. But then he also said being in poverty means being lacking the things 
that society has determined that credible people cannot be without. In his day, the example he gave was a linen shirt. You know, in previous, the Romans, as he said, didn't have linen shirts, but we do. If you don't have one of those, you can't hold your head up high in society. You look like you are just not, and you're not able to participate. Yeah. And so, if everyone's getting better, I mean, you're getting better off. Yes, that does address absolutely. That does address some of the issues around poverty. But if the increase in incomes for the poorest is less than the increase in incomes for the average, people in poverty will just feel themselves falling further and further behind what everybody else has, and they'll the become norm. yeah, and they'll become less and less able to, in the words of the Royal Commission in the eighties, participate and feel like they belong in society. Climate change. Uh, we had four public debates three television debates and, and one the stuff debate between the two major party leaders. Climate change didn't make it into any of those um, listed questions that any of the MCs or facilitators raised. It came up I think in a minor party uh, leaders debate and there was also a, a separate climate change debate at the University of Auckland as well. Why won't political parties or in this case the media bring that forward as something that needs addressing now? Well, I mean, the fact that it wasn't in the debates may may tell you something about Mike Hosking as much as... Uh, the two of them. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but no, that's a bit glib. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's the classic thing that is hard for politicians because it involves lots of difficult choices about a complex, abstract issue that mostly uh, seem, you know, brings negative things to bear, um, and it's, you know, and, and it involves very difficult, yeah, very difficult trade-offs with lots of losers. Um, I mean, one of the things we're not talking about, for instance, is although there was a leaked report about it, you know, is the effect that rising sea levels are going to have on a lot of New Zealand because, you know. The a lot of infrastructure in a lot of people's houses are, you know, in very much in coastal areas. So I mean, I think it's I think it's a difficult thing for politicians to talk about. It also involves us thinking really long term. Um, and I wonder, I mean, this is a bit speculative, but one of the th you look at the countries that are maybe better prepared for the long term. Um, particularly you know, around things like climate change and they're typically the Scandinavian societies. And I think it's easier for them to do that because they have higher trust in their government. You know, and you look at things like the sovereign wealth funds they have. Mm. You know, those only work because people, you know, the Arabs and Scandinavians are like, yeah, no, I actually trust government to hang on to all this money and invest it for 50 years or whatever. You know, those things run very much on trust and I'm not sure we have that much trust our government in New Zealand at the moment. And the third thing I would say, and this may be um, controversial, but I'm also not sure that New Zealanders care about the environment as much as they say they do. You know, it's very much part of our sort of national uh, myth, um, you know, clean green New Zealand and all of that, but I, I am increasingly questioning how real that commitment is. One example, we're terrible recyclers. You know, we recycle very little of the stuff that could go 
um, that could be recycled compared to you know, some European societies where 80% of their potentially recyclable material is recycled. And recycling is the simplest, most basic thing you could do to do your bit for the environment. And we are apparently incapable even of doing that. So I just, I just wonder if politicians have actually realised something true about us, that we don't care that much, and there's not a lot of votes to be won in, in, in addressing the issue. I was a bit disheartened during the campaign. There was a panellist on one of the morning TV shows, and they were talking about clean rivers, and you know we want to get to a point where we have swimmable rivers. And her view was, why do we need swimmable rivers? I never swim in rivers. I'm in the city. I would never go and swim in a river. And I thought, oh, well, that's a view. You know? um, and it takes you to a certain point, doesn't it? You know? um, James Shaw, and he should say this, of course, as Greens leader, he, he repeatedly tried to make the argument that, that climate change presents the greatest economic opportunity that we've faced for a long time in terms of the new industries and the new energy, sustainable industries and so on. Do you believe that'll be an argument that'll ever be able to be um, successful? In a, again, to an electorate? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. I mean, and I should say that when I sort of make these sweeping claims about these things not being on the agenda, I mean, often... Yeah, you're right. I mean, some at least one party leader has raised, you know, at least some elements of these things. Yeah, and and James Shaw has been very strong on that. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think that is true. I think there is a huge economic opportunity, and yet it would, you know, and there's I suspect people in the room who will know more about this than I do. And yet, to grasp that opportunity we would have to do things that as a country we have not been doing for a very long time. I mean, that's all part of the same... I mean, if, if you know, vivid economics is right and we need to cut the dairy herd by a massive amount, that would be part of that sort of classic story of, you know, diversifying our exports, doing less primary stuff, doing more value-added. Well, you know, visionary public servants like Bill Such were saying these things back in the 50s and 60s, that we need to do all these things and we have consistently not done mm. those things mm. uh, for a very long time. Um, and, I mean, it may be that the urgency of climate change actually just forces us into it and the sheer international pressure around it. But again, that kind of shift requires all sorts of things, probably again, trust in government, ability to plan for the long term, you know, ability to sort of wean yourself off the dependence on agriculture. And again, planning for the long term... You know, if you think again about sort of the classic New Zealand strengths, it's all about short-term adaptivity, number eight fencing wire, making the best of a bad situation. I'm not sure that our strengths as a country lie in, have you know, that, that we are very comfortable in grappling with those big long-term issues. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not super optimistic about that sort of James Shaw argument. So we've been grappling with one long-term issue for a long time, which is the treaty settlements process. Mm. Well, for a generation or a generation and a half, not mm. that long. You, you mentioned in your opening that, you know, what, where do we get to in a sort of a post-treaty mm. world and how does New Zealand develop in that way? Again, in the in debate over water uh, and water rights and water charging, uh, Winston Peters, who's now pivotal to all that we see before us, uh, is one who says that the approach that National has taken with 
uh, Tuwhara Toa and Tainui Waikato over Lake Taupo and, and the Waikato River uh, is sort of the, the, the pathway or the riverway to, uh, you know, to chaos that we can't allow even co-ownership rather than ownership of water. Mm. So can we, even though we've addressed that big issue for so long, can we have any confidence in looking forward to your post-treaty world when there are the scaremongers and the doommongers about co-management let alone, or co-ownership, let alone one party taking ownership or something like that? Well, yeah, I mean, these are, these are very real issues, and I mean, and I think this is one of the hardest of all the issues um, for people to grapple with, you know, not least because I'm not convinced that there's any good sort of international models that you mm. can draw on. Mm. Um, around doing this stuff very well. I mean, I, I, would, I would think and hope that in saying that, Winston represents a view that is, that is passing um, from New Zealand society. I mean, not entirely, but yeah, I mean, you look at where the National Party is on these things. You, know, you look at where Bill English is. I mean, his... I mean, obviously it's far from perfect, but his, you know, a degree of comfort in Te Ao Māori that you would not have seen well, I mean, actually, I mean, Jim Bolger did some good work, but you would not have seen, you know, a generation before that from a national mm. party leader. Mm. You know, I think that's a profound shift. And, you know, things like like the agreement with Tuhoi, um, you know, which is a very, a very strong recognition of the wrongs done by the Crown and a fair degree of, you know, autonomy for Tuhoi in terms of how they manage things in their rohe. And even, I mean, I don't know where it's sort of gone, but I remember at the time of the signing of that deal, there was a bit of talk about, well, actually, maybe Tuhoi could even manage their own bits of the welfare state, mm. you know, as part of, well, you know, they want those things to work in ways that, you know, fit with their own practices, and they don't feel that welfare as traditionally delivered has been working. I mean, I can see all sorts of... You know potential problems and issues in that, but I think it never got off the ground. I think the devolution mm. of those responsibilities was too much to to that kind of yeah. voting sector. Yeah, and sure, probably at the moment. But you know mm. the fact that that door was even opened briefly, and you know, and I think without being sort of misty-eyed about things, I mean, I think there is a growing, you know, sort of awareness at least of biculturalism, which is sort of the soft prelude to, you know, actually that, that much tougher power sharing stuff. I mean, I think that's growing. I think that's much stronger my, amongst my generation than it has been previously, and I think it's even stronger in the generations I see coming through. Um, you know, and, and we've been having a debate today, I mean, you know, morning reports dominated by the story about, you know, is there a seat created on Auckland Council for Māori? Mm. I mean, and again, these things may not immediately go anywhere, but I think you see those things happening and I'm hopeful at least that those are the majority and that sort of the Winston view of the world is increasingly the minority. Ageing population and the diversity that we face, on age and on superannuation, should we have an expectation that we can retire? I, I absolutely think so because, I mean, I think work is really valuable, but people should work, you know, if they want to work rather than it sort of being forced on them for most of their life. And, you know, and so in that sense, retirement is not 
I think forcing people into a fixed way of life, it's increasing the amount of choice that you have. You're not saying at this point you can keep working if you want, but if you don't, and it's particularly relevant for um, people who've been working in very, very tough professions, particularly people in manual labour, uh, you know, if you really don't want to keep working past 65, and there are people, plenty of people who don't and can't, um, then there is an entitlement there for you. So, I mean, I think that's a really important thing. But how do we pay for it? And I think you said earlier that you're not one of those who believe that the superannuation costs are actually that great as being portrayed. Is that something that you've... Yeah, I mean, and again, this is a place where it would be good to have a, a deeper debate, because most people just have that headline figure that the cost of superannuation is going to double as a percentage of GDP. But Bill Rosenberg from the CTU did a bit of analysis a few months ago where he said that all those figures are neglecting the fact that, are neglecting tax, basically, and the fact that, among other things, the New Zealand Super Fund is taxed and will be paying increasingly large amounts of tax in future. I mean, all the payments to superannuitants that are being measured in those figures will be taxed. And his argument is that changes the figures to uh, New Zealand Super being about I think 4.9% of GDP at the moment, rising to 6.1% um, if we keep it at 65. And at that, you know, and at 6.1%, that would still be well below, I think, the average of what OECD countries spend on pensions, even at present. You, you still have the issue, of course, that the burden of that tax will be borne by a smaller number of workers than in the past because of the, the changing proportions of older people and younger people. So you will be asking you know, the average worker in future to pay much more in tax towards that entitlement than they did. But it, to me on those figures it doesn't seem like this alarming, oh my God, mm. we face financial crisis sort of narrative that, that we have heard. Which is what Winston is saying right now, that mm. there's, a, there's a net cost increase of 3.8%, which probably mm. Allies to those figures. Yeah, he might be using Bill's. Uh, he probably has yeah. used Bill's uh, theory. Mm. Um, but uh, but in terms of that question of how can we fund it and how can we pay, if we went to the welfare reform or the change of system for something like a UBI, mm. how does that play into that? Because that's we're talking about payment in the future of one benefit or mm. one payment. But if we're all if we introduce a UBI. How does that affect the ability to then pay again <clears throat> for the old? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not personally in favour of a universal basic income across the board. Um, I mean, New Zealand Super, of course, is a universal basic income for people over 65 because it's not means-tested. Um, and I think there are arguments for a universal child benefit in the first three years of life, which has been re recommended by a number of expert bodies, the problem is if you're going to pay a universal basic income to all of the 3.5 or so million adults in New Zealand, it's very, very expensive. I mean, if you paid it, and I mean, and I think any welfare system has a number of objectives, but primary amongst it is tackling poverty and ensuring a decent level of existence for people who are reliant on benefits. So for me, you know, the and New Zealand Super is an enormous poverty reduction success story because it is pegged to the average wage and it's basically set just above the poverty line. And and it's very successful. But it 
it's $20,000 a year if you net, you know, after tax. Well, if you pay $20,000 a year to all the adults in New mm. Zealand, um, even with savings from the existing system, you'd be looking at a cost of $50 billion in a country where our total tax take, I think, is about $70 billion. I mean, it is just grotesquely unaffordable. And if you, if you did it sort of Gareth Morgan style, where you take it down to you're giving everyone 10000 a year, yeah. it still costs a huge amount. You're not increasing the incomes of the poorest New Zealanders. Um, and then really, what is, what is the point of that? So I don't, I don't think a universal basic income is the way to go. So what are the other options in a, in a sort of big picture welfare reforms? Well, there's probably, I mean, there's the questions about sort of the design and flexibility stuff that I talked about earlier. You know, that you need a system that adapts, you know, immediately. If your income is very variable from work, I think we need a system that adapts seamlessly to top your income up if you suddenly have much less work one week than you thought you were going to get. So that that's a design and sort of speed issue. Um, more broadly, I think there's increasing evidence that sanctions don't work. Mm. I mean, the idea that you have to be looking for work to receive the benefit and you'll be sanctioned if you don't has become very ingrained, but the international evidence you know, seems to be that punitive systems don't work. I mean, they actually don't, they're not very good at getting people back into work and point of fact, people just tend to disappear off the rolls. Um, and they're very damaging for the children and the families of people who are sanctioned. Um, and, you know, and particularly forcing people into part-time, unstable, precarious work, which our current <coughs> system does, is probably worse for their health than being on the benefit is. So I think there's probably a strong argument to wind back a lot of the conditions, a lot of the work tests that people face. I think there's an argument for what we call a guaranteed minimum income, which is basically setting the benefit above the poverty level and making it unconditional. Now that'd be very controversial mm. in New Zealand, but the evidence actually is when you give people unconditional sums of money, they tend to spend it well. You know, the problem with UBI for me is not the unconditional bit. I think that makes sense. It's the universal bit. Yeah. So I think you pay it generous, you don't work test it, but then you do claw it back from people as they earn more in order to keep it affordable. Which in many ways sounds like what Materia was putting forward before she was pushed off the high board in the sense of you know, yeah. raising the, the benefits by 20%, yeah. removing all the punitive sanctions, and, and the, all the other work tests yeah. and anything else. Yeah. Uh, which, which, you know, almost proved like touching something that shouldn't be touched and yes. she fell to her, you know, doom. Yeah, although it's interesting because Horizon did some polling <coughs> after that, which you would have seen, um, in fact, I think you guys covered it, that said when they interviewed people who'd voted Green in 2014, the reasons... Basically, those people, about a third of them, the material issue had made them less likely to vote Green. A third said it made no difference, and a third said it actually strengthened them in their resolution in voting Green. Mm. So I think it seems off the basis of that that the drastic drop in the Green vote was mostly the Ardern effect rather than the, the anger over, over material stuff. But, but I agree, it, it, is a, it is a fundamentally unpopular stance. Um, 
and I think it is unpopular because <coughs> one of the effects of widening inequality, and you see this in Auckland more than anywhere else, is that people become increasingly segregated in terms of where they live, and they lose their sense of other people's lives and their empathy for other people. And so I think New Zealanders have incredibly negative views towards beneficiaries and beneficiary parents. And until you can turn that around, yeah, I would agree that sort of the well, kind of welfare reform that I might envisage is probably going to be very difficult to get through. And we can't talk big picture welfare reform without addressing the social investment program. What's your view on we're going to do it one life at a time? <laughs> I think the problem with that, and um, you know, and this is an area where. Um, you know, Māori academics are often the forefront of pointing this out, is it doesn't take into account the social context in which people operate. I mean, you can do an intervention that's targeted at improving the, you know, the employability, say, of an individual, but if they're in a whānau or a community or whatever that's pretty dysfunctional, um, you know, for reasons not, you know, their own doing necessarily, but nonetheless is, is very difficult, that potentially will wipe out all the effects of that programme that's aimed at the one life at a time. More broadly on social investment, um, I mean, I think in a way it's m much less than it's, more sensible but also less exciting than it's made out to be. Um, I mean, it's really just a way of saying, well, you know, let's, let's measure the impacts of these social programs that we do. And use the data the right way. Yeah, and then, but then of course you're into all the problems about the data and what does the data really tell you and how much weight do you put on the data. Because of course a lot of things that we do in life in keeping, um, somebody's made this point really clearly, uh, we just will never have data for and they're things we do for really strong ethical reasons. I mean, you know, what would happen if you'd applied the social investment approach to Martin Luther King? You know, um, would you say, well, Dr. King, you know, I mean, do you have evidence? Prove no. it. Prove yes. it. You know, of course you wouldn't, and you would mm. never have been able to prove, mm. you know, kind of the, you know, so, I mean, I think in its own limited context, it's something that just really makes sense. Although it also has the implication, I mean, if you, if you want to do measure stuff and measure what works, you're going to have to spend money on the evaluation. And it's one of the things I think New Zealand government historically is terrible at is evaluating programs, but that costs money, and that's going to mean you know more government spending as a percentage of GDP if we're actually going, going to put that social investment into practice. And that lack of evaluation is why we keep getting work for the dole come back every half, half generation. And boot camps yeah. Yeah. and yeah. Yeah. you know drug testing for beneficiaries. Because no one actually bothered looking and wondering, yeah. Well, yeah, and also just, I mean, you shouldn't exaggerate how much politics is driven by evidence and how much it's driven by appeals to base emotions. Emotion, yeah, yeah. Right, well we were to speak for 45 minutes. Um, there is an opportunity now, uh, out further out for drinks and food, but also to put questions um, to Max uh, and to test some of what he said. Um, yeah. Thank you Max for that. Uh, they are big ideas and New Zealand hasn't been very good in the <laughs> last while anyway with dealing with big ideas I don't think. Um, so you might be lonely for a while when you out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, not among Victoria alumni, but you know, in general. Uh, but it was wonderful to hear and, and fascinating to, to, to go through in, in such a quick fire way. Yeah. Um, thank you, Grant. Thank you, Victoria, uh, for putting this on. And uh, I hope you all took something from that and do argue with Max out in the foyer.
To stay up to date with the latest cutting-edge research from Victoria University of Wellington, subscribe now through iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast provider. Thanks to Te Koki New Zealand School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded.